So glad to have all of you with us this morning. We are uh, working our way through the Gospel of Mark a section at a time, and we are still in chapter 8 today. We won't finish the chapter, quite finish the chapter today, but we will look uh, this morning at verses 22 to 33. This actually is number 30. We had 30 sermons on the book of Mark, and and uh, we are just, this is sermon number 30 today. We're kind of halfway through chapter 8, taking a section at a time and uh, preaching through this. So Mark chapter 8, and we are going to begin to read in verse 22, and we will go to verse 33. Mark chapter 8. And if you need a Bible, there's certainly, there's one on every pew, at uh, one on every row there if you need to get one. Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 22. Then he came to Bethsaida, you remember that, that's where the feeding of the 5,000 was, a number of important things happened there in Bethsaida. He came to Bethsaida, this is Jesus of course, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. Then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up. And he was restored and saw everyone clearly. Then he sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into the town, nor tell anyone in the town. Remember, Jesus has said that to many, many people through his ministry. Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist. But some say, Elijah. Others, one of the prophets. But he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. A long, long time ago, when I was in about the fifth grade, which was a long time ago, our family lived in a, in a rural area of Florida, not as wide open and somewhat empty as Montana, but dotted with small farms and vegetable fields and citrus groves and interspersed with meadows and some wooded areas. Several of our neighbor families had a few, uh, had a few horses, mostly Shetland and Welsh ponies that we kids used to ride around uh, bareback through the citrus groves and wooded areas and across the meadows. Well, one fine summer day, we were uh, riding around, and, and I decided to take a shortcut on my little Welsh pony, not mine, but the one that our neighbors had let me ride, on my little uh, Welsh pony to wherever we were going. I don't even remember exactly where we were going to, just riding around through the neighborhood area there. And I decided uh, to take this, this shortcut and lope in between a couple of houses, great big yards, and they were pretty far apart, but, but I really shouldn't have been doing it anyway. But when you're 11 years old, you know, you're half brain dead anyhow. So, uh, so I, you know, I, I, so I, I, I kind of hit a lope right between these two, these two houses, 
and I loped right under a clothesline that I didn't see. <laughs> Caught me right across the chest. Fortunately, it didn't hit me in the neck. Caught me right across the chest, and although this was a long time before anyone had any handheld recording devices, if someone had re recorded it, I'm sure it would have been a fantastic stuntman scene as I rolled off of that Welsh pony in a spectacular backflip and landed flat on my back in the grass with the wind knocked out of me. As soon as I quit seeing stars and caught my breath, I could see the clothesline waving back and forth over me, and I realized what I had done. I slowly struggled to get up, looked around, kind of, everything still moved, I was still alive, <laughs> uh, just kind of catching my breath, and uh, I, uh, I was, uh, I, <laughs> I looked around for my friends, they had, they had ridden off to somewhere, nobody seemed to be around to have seen my, fa to have seen my uh, fantastic stuntman scene, my Welsh pony was standing there looking at me, I was feeling quite, uh, quite like an idiot, and, uh, but I climbed back on and rode off to find my friends. When I caught up to them a couple minutes later, they said, What happened? Where'd you go? And with all of the macho insecurity of an 11-year-old, I said, Ah, oh, nothing. I just stopped for a minute. <laughs> well, I stopped for a minute, all right. I had a very sudden stop for a minute. They all shrugged and off we went. And my, my bruise the next morning looked like someone had taken a black magic marker and drawn a line straight across my chest. Big black and blue line right across there. And I learned very, very powerfully that day the value of excellent vision. You know, we tend to take for granted our eyesight until our vision begins to fade. Then we realize that incredible marvel of the human eye. It is one of God's most intricate, complex, complicated, interconnected creations. The, the, the human eye is, is, is just absolutely amazing. And in the world of Jesus' day, to be without vision was a terrible condition. You, you were thought to be cursed by God in some way. Remember the story of the blind man in John chapter 9, and the disciples came and, uh, and they said to the Lord Jesus, Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And I've, I've often thought, how can you sin before you're born? But anyway, who sinned, this man, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Blindness was thought to be part of the curse of God. Remember Job's friends, who they were certain that Job had some, some secret sin he was hiding because so many bad things had happened to him. And uh, many people thought if you were blind, you, you, you must be cursed by God in some way. And of course, some folks were born blind, others had lost their sight at some point in their lives. There was no cure. There was no relieving of your condition in any way, no eye surgeries, no cataract removal, no laser surgery. If your eyesight was gone, it was gone for good, end of story. You could not work and you were reduced to begging. You know, in the ancient world, the scientific understanding of disease did not even exist. No one understood bacteria, germs as we might call them, that, would, that could cause disease. No one even knew they existed. The microscope was not invented until the 1600s. And by the 1670s, the Dutch scientists had, had discovered bacteria, and, and he opened this whole new realm of science that was born that we call microbiology. But, but before then, nobody really knew exactly what caused illnesses or diseases, nor did they know how to attempt a cure. 
Even after the discovery of bacteria in the 1670s, antibiotics were not developed until 1928. If it were not for antibiotics, I would have died from strep throat when I was 16. I was so incredibly sick, I don't think I would have survived it. Many of you would not be alive today if it, if it were not for antibiotics. They've barely been around 100 years. So when we read through our study of the Gospel of Mark, as we've been doing for many months now, and, and we see all of the miracles that our Lord Jesus performed, and all of the diseases and all of the illnesses that he corrected, well, we probably don't quite grasp how awe-inspiring that was to the people of his day. It would be awe-inspiring to us to see what Jesus did. But to folks who lived in a time when nobody got healed of anything, you got sick and you died. And there was virtually nothing anybody could do about it. You know, uh, Peter's mother, the Apostle Peter, his mother-in-law, we read earlier, in him, she, she, was, she was very, very sick of a fever, so sick she was in bed. She had a fever. Like, why don't you take some ibuprofen or some... And it didn't exist. You got a fever, I mean, it gave you a stroke. I mean, people, the people just, they just got sick and they died. And, and there was virtually nothing anybody could do about it. And so when, when you realize that, that Jesus, every place he goes... It's just healing people of all these sicknesses, all these diseases, touching people, speaking to people. They're touching his robe. They're touching his garment. People are being healed. There's, it was just absolutely mind-blowing because so many people died so young from things that nobody knew anything about what to do about it. And of course, unlike so many of our modern so-called faith healers, Jesus healed conditions that anyone could verify. It wasn't, you know, something down inside me hurts and somebody prayed and the hurt quit. That's great, wonderful, hopefully it did. But I mean, Jesus healed things that you could see. He healed things everybody could verify. He took lame, uh, he took you know, crippled, twisted up arms and just straightened them out. He healed blind people. We saw last week uh, this guy who was deaf. You remember when John the Baptist was in prison, which you remember from just a few chapters ago. He sent messengers to Jesus, asking if Jesus was really the Messiah, or should they look for somebody else? When they came and asked Jesus that, because of course John's in prison, he figures he's going to be dead pretty soon, and the Lord Jesus Christ is doing many wonderful things, but he's not really doing everything they thought the Messiah was going to do. They thought the Messiah was going to rid them of Roman oppression, and rise up against the Roman army, and drive the Romans out of Israel, and do all those things, and, and, uh, and, and, they were, and, and I'm sure John the Baptist in those closing months of his life, which is exactly what it, what it ended up being, He's probably wondering, is my, is my cousin Jesus, is he, really, is he really the Messiah? And so he sends messengers to him and says, should we keep looking or are, are you the guy? You know what Jesus, I mean it's kind of interesting. Jesus says to them, go back and tell John that the blind see. Amen. He didn't give them this big long discussion. He said, go back and tell John that the blind see, and the lame walk, and lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. The implication being, who can do that stuff except the Messiah? Are you really the Messiah? Well, yes, the blind see. So what do you think? 
Jesus, Jesus healed conditions that anyone could verify. This miracle that we just read here, the Lord Jesus, has a couple of very unique features. It's, 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 it's one of the two miracles that are only recorded in the Gospel of Mark. You know, you got Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, very, very similar, just looking at the life of Jesus from several different perspectives. And a lot of the same miracles and parables that are in Matthew or in Mark or in Luke, and, and there's a lot of overlap between them, and, and that is by God's design. But, but this miracle we just read is only in the Gospel of Mark. It's the only place that it appears. Only There are two miracles Jesus did that are only in Mark. The other one was in chapter 7. We looked at a couple weeks ago when Jesus healed the deaf man. But this, this healing is only recorded for us in Mark. And it's also, in a, another interesting, unique thing, it is the only healing that was done in two stages. You know, all of the time when Jesus was healing people, a touch or a word, bang, it was over. They were healed. But this healing took place in two stages. And it's kind of interesting to think about why. And I've got a theory for you that I'll share with you in just a minute. But I want you to note something again as we looked at this. Look at verse 22 again. He came to Bethsaida. They brought a blind man to him, begged him to, to touch him. Notice they didn't say they begged him to heal him. They begged him to touch him. And so Jesus takes the blind man by the hand, he touches him, leads him out of town, spit on his eyes, put his hands on him, he touched him, then he asked him if he saw anything. And I, and I, just, I just want to note again that, that Jesus touched the man, he took him by the hand, he led him away from the crowds. That may seem very ordinary for us as we read the Gospels, and, and for Jesus it was very ordinary. But it was very unlike the religious leaders of his day. They didn't touch anybody, and nobody touched them. They, they remained very disconnected from the average person. You weren't even supposed to get near to them. If some Pharisee or scribe or Sadducee, some religious leader of the day, came into your town, you didn't, you didn't run up and shake their hand. You didn't run up and touch their robe. You ran up and maybe stopped five feet away, ten feet away, like, don't get too near me, because I am a religious leader. I mean, there was just this, this, this kind of this uh, security bubble around the religious leaders of the day. And you, they didn't touch you and you didn't touch them. They didn't get near you and you didn't get near them. The Lord Jesus, of course, was exactly the opposite. In his healing ministry, he took people by the hand. He touched their eyes. He touched their ears. The scripture often says, he, as it is here, he laid his hands on someone. Perhaps put his hands on their shoulders. He also allowed himself to be touched. You remember that in many towns, people gathered to try to get near to Jesus and, and just touch his robe as he walked by. And he allowed it without rebuke. He never jumped back and said, don't touch me. Are you, don't you know who I am? No, 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 no. Jesus allowed himself to be touched, and he touched, he touched people. He touched people who had leprosy. People want to say 500 yards from them. In fact, if somebody got close and you had leprosy, you were supposed to yell out, unclean, unclean. So they would know you had leprosy and they could kind of take a detour, not get near you. Jesus walked right up to people with leprosy and touched them. I'm sure this gasp would go through the crowd, you know. <gasps> he touched the guy with leprosy. He's going to get it. Well, of course he didn't, and, and he never would, because he just healed the guy. So I'm, I'm just saying, it's just, it's just another incredible reminder 
of the tender compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a Savior who is near. He is not this distant, disconnected God who's just kind of out there and hopefully, maybe, he'll hear me if I pray. We've quoted the verse many times to you during our prayer time, that wonderful passage in Hebrews chapter 4, where it says that Jesus, our high priest, is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. What a beautiful picture. Jesus Christ is moved or is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Jesus is a Savior who is near. He touched people. And He allowed Himself to be touched. Because there was no wall between Jesus and the average person. Here He is, the Son of God. God in the flesh. The same person who spoke and the world came into existence. And He let people come up and touch Him. And took little kids up in His lap. Piled up little kids in His lap. And hugged them. Jesus was a tender, compassionate Savior. And He still is today. He is a Savior who is near. He is not a Savior who is distant and disconnected. But why this, why this two-stage miracle? It's the only one in the Gospels. Why, why, why is there two stages where Jesus spits on his eyes, touches his eyes, and he says, what do you see? Well, I, I see men like, like trees walking. Everything's kind of fuzzy, you know. And, and you think, boy, that's kind of interesting, the way Jesus usually healed. Usually, bang, it was, it was perfect. Everything was perfect. And so Jesus puts his hands on his eyes again. And then he makes him look up. And he was restored, verse 25 says, and he saw everyone clearly. Just a fascinating thought. Why would there be this two-stage miracle? You know, the, 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 our scripture passage doesn't really explain that. So we're kind of left to speculate and theorize. And I'm going to speculate and theorize with you because I think it kind of fits the passage here. But what one wonders, I can't help but wonder, if the Holy Spirit directed Mark to include this right here because it is a picture of the spiritual eyesight and spiritual growth of the disciples. They saw some things, but it was a little fuzzy. Then later on, their spiritual eyesight became clearer. Now, we can't be dogmatic about it because the text doesn't say it, but I want you to think about this with me for a moment. The disciples believed they had turned from darkness. They had walked into the light. They came out of darkness into light, out of death into life. But their ability to see spiritually kind of comes in stages. And I just wonder, does the Holy Spirit direct Mark to place this here because that's how our spiritual sight comes in stages? This is an amazing miracle. It's also, I believe, also intended to be an amazing word picture. Just like the man whose sight came in stages, so the disciple's spiritual sight comes in stages gradually more and more. And those of you who've known the Lord Jesus Christ for many years, you understand that. There are things you understand today you didn't understand five years ago. There are things you can see today that you couldn't see ten years ago. There are ideas and concepts and values that you didn't have 15 years ago that you have today. 15 years ago, somebody would say something to you about living for God, and that whole concept was a little fuzzy to you. 
Now, like, what does that actually look like, and what does that actually mean? And I, I think I sort of kind of get it, but it's, it's like it's like men like trees walking. I just I just can't quite see it clearly. And then over the process of time, God continues to open your eyes, and you grow in the things of God. And then all of a sudden, you find yourself thinking and believing and practicing things that ten years ago you never thought you would, because now you can see it clearly. You know, we saw last Sunday Jesus gave the disciples this gentle rebuke because of their spiritual blindness. Remember when he, he warned them about the leaven of the Pharisees and they thought he was talking about bread? You know, it was a little fuzzy, wasn't it? Beware of the, of the leaven of the Pharisees. They said, man, he must, we only have one loaf of bread in the boat. That, that must be what he's talking about. Yeah, yeah, I'd say things were a little fuzzy. And Jesus says to them, don't you see? Don't you get it? Don't you understand? Don't you remember who I am? Why are you worried about bread? And then we have this miracle of the blind man being healed in two stages. First getting back some vision, but it's fuzzy. And then, and then, and then he gets complete vision. And then following that, right after that, then we have this interesting, <laughs> or this actually beautiful confession of the Apostle Peter. But still, even when the Apostle Peter says this great thing, he asks this question, Who do men say that I am? Well, some people think you're John the Baptist, risen from the dead. Some people think you're maybe Elijah, come back from the dead. Other people think maybe you're just some great prophet. And Jesus asked, that, asked this wonderful question, and I ask this to you too. Who do you say that I am? That is the most important question of your life. Who do you say Jesus is. And the way you answer that question will determine your eternal destiny. It will determine the blessing of God on your life or not. It will determine whether you are under God's hand of grace or under God's hand of judgment. Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? And Peter, of course, gives this great confession. In the Gospel of Matthew, it's a little longer. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Here he just, uh, Mark just records, Peter says to him, you are the Christ. And notice, uh, the Christ. The Christ is not really a name, it's more of a title. It's more like uh, he is, uh, in fact, this, uh, uh, this Messiah, the Hebrew word comes uh, that it comes from means anointed. It was the person promised by the scriptures who would redeem Israel. The New Testament Greek word for Messiah is Christos, or Christ, also means the anointed one. And so when Peter calls Jesus the Christ, he is saying that to, to, to the Lord Jesus that he was the promised Savior, the one that the Old Testament scriptures prophesied would come. By the grace of God opening his eyes to the truth, Peter is quite certain who the Messiah is. He's just a little fuzzy about what the Messiah is going to do. See, even though Peter had clear vision on who Jesus was, he did not have clear vision on what Jesus was going to do. Jesus says in Matthew 16, Peter got this idea who Jesus was from God and not from man. The passage in Matthew says that Jesus says to Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. But then, right after that, when Jesus starts to teach him about, teach him about his coming death, Peter kind of flips out. Well, why? Because he's still a little fuzzy on this Messiah issue. He, he knows who Jesus is, 
but he doesn't understand what Jesus is going to do. And, and, and if you can believe it, I mean, we all shake our heads, but we do some of the same sort of silly things. He actually starts rebuking the Lord Jesus Christ. He takes him aside. Well, wait a minute, Lord. You can't die. What are you talking about? You're the Messiah. You're going to deliver us from Roman oppression. You're going to give us back our land and our kingdom. You're going to rule the world from Jerusalem, just like God promised King David about his, about his descendant. You're the one. You're already healing everybody who gets near you. You're fulfilling the words of Isaiah. The lame are walking. The blind are seeing. The deaf are hearing. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. You can't die. What are you talking about dying? What's this dying stuff? You see, Peter's vision of the Messiah did not leave room for death. Peter's idea of the Messiah followed the popular belief that he would be this warrior king who would come to Israel and, and he, would, he would return Israel to world prominence and, and throw off the Roman yoke of oppression. You know, we're always interested in getting what we want right now. But Jesus' real mission, of course, was much, much bigger than that. And for the very first time, notice it says in verse 31, he began to teach them. This isn't the last time he'll say this. This is the first time he says this. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. Jesus speaks about four realities of being the Messiah. The first thing he says, he has to suffer. The Son of Man will suffer many things. And of course, that's a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised or crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was on Him. Isaiah 53 very clearly says the Messiah must suffer. But most of the Jews had, had kind of missed that. The second thing he says, he says, He must be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes. Psalm 118, verse 2 says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's a reference to the Messiah. He is going to be rejected. The third thing he says is that the Messiah has to be killed. He's going to be killed. Daniel chapter 9, in that great prophecy of the 70 weeks, we call it, it says, after those 62 weeks, and we won't get into all of those things, we did when we preached through Daniel a number of years ago, some of you remember it, but it says, after, those, after that period of time, the Messiah will be cut off and will have nothing. That is, the Messiah is going to get killed. It was prophesied in the Old Testament. Psalm 16.10 says that Jesus would rise again, or that the Messiah would rise. After three days, he would rise again. Psalm 16 says, uh, speaking of the Messiah, You will not leave my soul in Sheol, in hell. You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. Now, Peter eventually got it because that Peter quotes that verse, Psalm 16. And from, he quotes that in his Acts chapter 2 great sermon. And he, and he applies it to Jesus. He says he had to rise again because the scripture says that God would not allow his Holy One to see corruption. He would not allow his body to decompose in the grave. He had to rise again. And Peter connects, finally connects the dots and preaches that fantastic message in, 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 in Acts chapter 2. And he quotes Psalm 16. But right now, Jesus says, I got to suffer. I got to be rejected. 
I got to be killed, and then I'm going to rise. And Peter says, what? No way, Lord. See, this, this very idea of a suffering Messiah was so foreign to the Jewish mind that Peter corrects the Lord Jesus about his own plan. The word rebuke, is a, it's a very strong word. And, and it indicates Peter was rejecting Jesus' interpretation of the Messiah's purpose. The same man who just said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now he rejects what the Christ, the Son of the living God, has to do. A Messiah who dies was not part of Peter's political playbook. But bypassing the cross and going straight to Jesus' kingdom, that was part of Satan's playbook. Satan wanted Jesus, remember, Satan wanted Jesus to get the world by bowing down and worshiping him. Remember the temptation of Jesus in Matthew 4? We, we read it also here in the early chapters of Mark. If you'll just bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus, I can't do that yet. I'm going to get all the kingdoms of the world one day. You better believe it. Book of Revelation, you remember the Lord Jesus Christ comes back. You remember that great passage. We, we know it a lot because in that great, uh, that great uh, musical piece, Handel's Messiah, he has a king of kings and lord of lords. And the Lord Jesus Christ, when he comes back, he says, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Jesus is going to get all the kingdoms of the world. But Satan says, oh, just bow down and worship me. I'll give them to you first. You don't, have to do, you don't have to do the cross. Satan wanted Jesus to get the world without the cross. Because anything that keeps Jesus from suffering on the cross would keep mankind forever in bondage to sin. Now Peter was undoubtedly saying this about out of loyalty and love for the Lord Jesus. But Jesus didn't call on Peter to guide him or to instruct him. Peter's calling on Jesus to follow him. Something which we'll, we'll get into in the, the next verses, which Lord willing we'll look at next Sunday. Man's ways are not the ways of apparent weakness. I'm going to say that again because that is an important principle for us. Man's ways are not the ways of apparent weakness. We want strength. We want power. We want ability. We want recognition. We want to have this given to us and that given to us. And, and, and if we are in some circumstance where we, where, where we might look a little weak, we don't like that. And so Peter looks at Jesus and says, Die? What are you talking about? What, 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 die? Are you crazy? You can't die. You're the Messiah. And Jesus says, Get out of the way, Peter. You're thinking like a man. You're not thinking like God. I have to die. I have to suffer. I have to be rejected. I have to be killed. Then I will rise again. That's the plan. I've got to provide the way for the sin of, of human beings to, to be taken care of. And this is the only way it can happen. Yeah, the kingdom's coming, but not yet. See, Jesus is describing to Peter what Peter thinks looks like a defeated hero. But to defeat the ultimate enemy, death, Jesus has got to go right into the heart of death and kill it. By dying the death of an outcast and a sinner, even though he was totally innocent. 
Human beings would never have come up with that kind of a rescue plan. Quite often our plans to solve our problems only make them worse because we don't quite approach the problems from God's perspective. But trusting in God's plans, trusting in God's ways, it might seem weak, but in the end, it's very strong. Jesus looked very, very weak on the cross. But Sunday morning, he did not. Weakness and suffering most often comes before glory and blessing. The Lord Jesus Christ, or the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross was a very confusing time for the disciples. Maybe it's a little confusing for you too. Maybe Jesus isn't the Messiah you were looking for. I have many people tell me that they're kind of seeking the Lord, but they never get very far. Maybe they're looking for the wrong thing. And Mark, I believe, directed by the Holy Spirit, places a story here very strategically to help us make sense of it all. The story of the blind man points out to us that sight, as well as insight, doesn't necessarily come instantly. Jesus had to put his hands on the man's eyes twice in order for the healing to be complete. For Peter, he had a glimpse of who Jesus really was, but his first glimpse was also incomplete. He saw the coming king, but he skipped over the suffering Savior. You too might have an incomplete picture of who Jesus really is and what the cross really means. Who do you say that Jesus is? Answering that question is the most important thing you'll ever do. The Jewish idea of a Messiah was a king, which is true, but it was incomplete. Maybe what are, what are some incomplete visions of Jesus that you might have? I've heard people tell me Jesus was a wonderful teacher. Yes, he was. Jesus taught moral truth. Yes, he did. Jesus, I think Jesus was a prophet. Yes, he was. I think Jesus was a great example for us. Yes, he was. All true. But it's an incomplete picture. It's still fuzzy, like walking trees. To get a clear vision of who Jesus is, there are two concepts that you have to grapple with. They're right here in our passage. That when, when Jesus was dealing with the Apostle Peter, he, he kind of brought up these concepts. The first thing is this. Jesus is a Savior. Second thing is, Jesus is, is the Lord. To get a clear vision of who, of, to who Jesus is, you've got to come to grips with those two things, Savior and Lord. Savior means he voluntarily died to deliver you from the punishment for your sin. It means that you admit your sin and your inability to earn forgiveness and you trust what Jesus did on the cross for you. He can be your Savior. But Lord means that now he gets to run the show in your life. You see, if you think, and many people do, that you can get forgiveness, and then you can just kind of go on living any way you want to live, because now your sin problem's fixed. If you think that, then you still got a sin problem. It's not fixed. Because to, to repent means that you change your mind about your life and your lifestyle, and you turn around and you go the other direction. You're not perfect, you're never going to be. But you're going in a different direction. Your desire is to obey God and do what God says and to do His will. You see, if Jesus Christ is not your Savior and your Lord, that you, that you have submitted to Him and you have repented of your sin, then you have an incomplete picture. It's still, it's, it's still fuzzy. Who do you say that Jesus is? 
The way you answer that question will determine your blessing in this life and where you spend eternity. Let's pray. Lord, we very clearly admit to you that a lot of times our vision is a little fuzzy. We see men like trees walking. We kind of get the general idea, but we're just, we're just a little confused. We have scriptural concepts. We know facts about Jesus. We know things about the Lord. We got some knowledge of the Bible. But we just kind of have a little bit of fuzzy vision spiritually. We're expecting things from you that you never promised us. We're expecting you to be something that the Bible says you are not. And we're totally not expecting that you're our Savior and Lord. And I'm sure, our Father, that there are times when you look at us and you say, oh boy, you're really thinking like a human being today. You're not thinking God's thoughts, you're thinking man's thoughts. Lord, help us. We need you. You're the only one who can straighten out our vision. And as we look at the Word of God, and as we labor to follow you, Lord, I pray that you'd give us clear sight. Help us to know your will. Help us to uh, obey it. May we have the courage to do what you want us to do. And Lord, as we move along this path of growing in the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that you would clear our vision and make us see things as you see them, not as normal human beings see them. Give us the mind of Christ, as the Scripture says, a heart like the Lord Jesus Christ, as the Scripture teaches us. May we see things from God's perspective. May we see clearly. And Lord, for those here today who may not be quite sure just who Jesus is for them, maybe they're seeking the Lord, maybe they're not really sure if they truly know you or not, they Maybe they prayed a prayer sometime, maybe, maybe they didn't, maybe they just don't know what to do. They're kind of confused about the nature of the Lord Jesus Christ and who He is and what He's promised us and what He means for us. Lord, I pray that You'd open their eyes to see the truth. May we, Lord, not think thoughts like human beings, may we think thoughts like our Savior Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for these who are here today. May the Word of God find a place in our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Grab your hymn book, if you would, and uh, take a look. I'd like to sing 540 again. 540. I run to Christ. <laughs> 